Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about peace, conflict, and the media. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. Do you agree or disagree with the following statement? Weapons in war do not keep us safe. Instead, we should put our money and time into programs that ensure real safety and security for everyone, like affordable health care, a just judicial system, and economic opportunities. This is one of the messages tested in a poll conducted by the American Friends Service Committee, an advocacy organization that promotes peace and social justice around the world. The purpose of the poll taken in 2022 was twofold. First, to gauge U.S. public opinion on cutting military spending. Second, to test how people would respond to different messages about why cutting the military budget is important. They found that when Americans across different demographics were asked if they would support shifting Pentagon spending to domestic issues like healthcare and education, 60% said yes. My guest this episode, Beth Hallowell, helped design the Pentagon spending study, along with the 2023 study on U.S. attitudes towards peacebuilding. Beth is the Director of Research and Analytics at the American Friends Service Committee, also called the AFSC. She's got helpful insights about how peace builders can be more effective when communicating with the public and the media. Beth, welcome to Making Peace Visible. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So the peace and conflict study that you mentioned was really interesting. We carried it out starting in December of last year into January of this year. And we were aiming to look at the sort of mid-Ukraine conflict, where are we with China, tensions, sort of landscape to get a better sense of what kind of messages might help us build broad support for peace and peace building in this unusually tense time. Now, of course, we've seen a lot of conflict in recent years. You know, we were in conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan for most of my adult life, to be honest. But but something about this moment felt unique. So we wanted to see if we could come up with messages that would, broadly speaking, help us understand where where attitudes are at right now. So, so that's what we're aiming to do. And one of the baseline things that we were trying to get a handle of is how familiar is the American public with peace building? And the answer is not at all. Yeah, We weren't surprised by that. <laughs> I don't think anybody in the peace building field would be either. We found that almost two thirds of Americans, about 65% of Americans in our study reported that they had never heard the term peace building before, or relatedly that they weren't sure if they had ever heard of the term peace building. So that's a lot of people. You know, if you consider just the ones who have heard the term before, right. if if you ask them what it does it mean, right. you, you'd get an even smaller result. Exactly. Or can you use it in a sentence and so forth? Yeah. And actually, this poll, it was part of a bigger study where we actually were asking more qualitative questions like that of smaller, smaller groups of U.S. adults. And that's exactly what we heard back in our focus groups, that folks didn't know what peace building was, that they kind of sort of heard of it that one time, but really weren't really sure. And we, we asked for specific examples of times that folks could think of in U.S. history and recent memory where they had heard of a peace building effort or some kind of successful diplomatic or peace building effort. And most people could not name anything. Right. And even as you know, professionals who do this all the time, who work in the peace building space, 
when I was drafting questions and working with our partner organizations to draft the questions, we had trouble framing them, to be totally honest. Like we had trouble coming up with examples to share with folks in the study who might be, that might help jog folks' memory, things like that. So that just, it just goes to show how difficult and poorly publicized so much of the important work that peace builders do is. Right. No, and it's, I mean, the hopeful thing that came out of the research was that once you did explain to people what peace building is and how it works and that it, and the fact that it actually does work, people were very supportive. That's right. That was one of the most encouraging takeaways from this study was that when we asked folks different types of questions about which types of, what different types of non-military responses, how much do they support or what do they think about them? We did find significant majorities agree that the U.S. should pursue non-military engagement, positive options like peace building and diplomacy and so forth in order to prevent conflict and even in some cases to intervene in conflict. So for example, we had 81% of people strongly or somewhat agree that the U.S. should quote unquote work with other countries to build peace abroad in order to bridge differences and to prevent conflicts from erupting. So that was one of our best findings from my perspective. And you know, you never know going into these studies exactly what people are going to think. We, we do our homework, so we have some idea, but 81% of people agreeing that today is Thursday is a really good result. So <laughs> I, was, I was very happy to see something like that. The study that you did on Pentagon messaging and on the cost of war revealed some other interesting ideas about, you know, that, that we're spending too much. And that, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So we also did a study last year, 21 into 2022, right as the U.S. was coming out of ending the presence in Afghanistan, coming out of that conflict. And at first we did it thinking, oh, this is a new moment where spending priorities might be changing. Certainly we're committing fewer people abroad and so forth from a military perspective. Maybe there's going to be an opening from a messaging perspective or an advocacy perspective to advocate for cuts to Pentagon spending. Now that this conflict is is over, of course it was a it was a tragic ending in many ways, and I don't want to I don't want to downplay the violence that came after the the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and and still we were hopeful that maybe this could present a, a new kind of an opportunity, and we did. Similarly, we did a national focus group. We talked to smaller segments of U.S. adults, and then we did a, a national poll, and we found some very significant support for cutting Pentagon spending, which was really exciting to see. Folks were responsive to a lot of different types of messages that we put forward in our study. And overall, we were able to bump up support, a little bit of a bump overall for the U.S. population in terms of cutting Pentagon spending over the baseline that we had ascertained, which was already a a majority. So that was exciting. And and did that occur because you spent a little more time explaining about peace building or, or not? You know, that's a good question. I'm not really sure why we saw that bump. I, I like to think it was at least partly the timing that we were at that time in this. This is before the Ukraine invasion, which I'll get to in a second. But that the fall of 2021, folks were very tired of being at war in Afghanistan and of COVID and of all the other things that terrible things that were happening. And oh, yeah. No, it's been a turbulent time. It's been crazy. And yeah, unprecedented for all of us, right? And so I like to think that that at least played some role. 
that dense historical moment we've all been living through, uprisings for racial justice and and the pandemic and everything else, that folks were just tired of of conflict and violence, and that we that there was an op- that the opportunity we sensed actually was there. We were conducting our study, literally releasing it right before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I do think that changed the temperature completely. Right, literally, we saw one of the largest budgets, Pentagon spending increases ever right after that invasion of Ukraine. And so right. um, unfortunately, the messaging, <laughs> we we had a little moment and there was just, a, it was just a too short window. I like to think that if that hadn't happened, maybe we could have made some progress on that front. And maybe we will again, hopefully we'll have another bite at that apple. Why don't we take a second just to help frame the issues, take a second to define Pete's building for our listeners. Sure. So at least in the context of these studies, when we've tried to define it sort of in the in the research, what we were typically putting forward for folks is the plainest language version that we can come up with, right? So we're typically defining peace building as a some kind of effort that helps to end conflict or prevent conflict from erupting. Do you talk about it as a process? We do. And your previous guests on your podcast, uh, Liz Hume and Drew Volmer, were part of an excellent study that came out a little while ago where one of their findings was that we can use bridge building. Peace builders can use bridge building as a metaphor to help mm-hmm. people understand peace is a process that needs to be worked on. It's not something that happens overnight and it's not something that just is or is the absence of violence. And then when we used some of that bridge building metaphor language in our in our study in this 2023 peace peace and conflict study, we did find that folks responded with it as well. Yeah, I was struck. I mean, when you you know the the messaging that seemed to work best, you know, from one of your studies about I guess Pentagon spending is uh, our strength comes from our ability to work together, bringing together people. That kind of message. Yeah. Yeah, and I really have to give credit to the folks over at We Make the Future who've developed something called the Race Class Narrative, which is a messaging toolkit. They're typically working on domestic issues. They're not typically doing research or communications around foreign policy issues, but their messaging framework has been really effective in in our testing. And I, I really give them a ton of credit for doing some excellent background research to come up with their toolkit encourage all your listeners to go check them out. That's We Make the Future and the Race Class Narrative. They're trying to find ways to get folks from across the political spectrum to to sort of come together to messaging that will bring folks together on a wide variety of divisive issues. And, and when we've tested that framework in our messaging, when we're talking about Pentagon spending, peace and conflict, and so forth, we've we've seen extraordinary success, which is really cool. How do you explain that? And first, just tell us a little bit about what race class narrative is. So it is, it's a, as I mentioned, it's a, a narrative framework or a toolkit for constructing messages around any number of policy issues. So Oftentimes, I've seen them put out messaging on education, on on the economy, on policing, on healthcare, on any number of issues, domestic issues of our day. One of the things that this narrative framework very astutely and smartly responds to is this deep, deep, deep-seated division that we're experiencing right now across across the U.S. And so it's 
intentionally trying to construct messages that call people of different political orientations towards each other or calls them together by lifting up ex- shared values. Good communicators know you need to start with your audience and, and the values that you share with that audience. So, so that's great communications practice 101, right? And then, but then specifically like lifting up examples of when we have overcome differences in U.S. history. That's one of their innovations that I think is really exciting and I find personally very inspiring when I read their messaging. They're reminding us, you know, we've done this before. We've come together in difficult circumstances. We've all been through a lot and and we can do this. Can you give us an example of where this has worked before. Yeah. So in terms of the peace building examples that we've lifted up, we've we've talked a little bit about the Good Friday Accords in Northern Ireland, the Dayton Accords in the former Yugoslavia. And interestingly, I found this really curious, but I, and I need to work with this a little bit more in terms of our messaging. But when we were doing our focus groups and we asked people like like everyday Americans, you know, what are your examples that you can come up with? And like I said, a lot of folks don't have a good example or couldn't come up with something. But a lot of people did talk about the civil rights movement as an example of a time when peace building worked. And I love that. That did not occur to me because I had my like sort of foreign policy, international peace builder lens on the question, but I just really love that response and I, I would love to dig into that a little bit more in a follow-up study. Last year, AFSC published the results of a poll about military spending specifically, and in, in 2022, the U.S. spent $887 billion on the military. And, you know, People don't realize it, but it's four times what China spent and 10 times what Russia spent. In that poll, you you also tested different messages about cutting military spending. And we, we talked touched on that a little bit. The messages people responded to most positively were about diverting military spending to address domestic issues like health care, the economy, and education. You know, try and create a situation where people can get better jobs and more healthcare. Can you talk about that? How do we how do we um, explode that a little bit? <laughs> oh my goodness! In any way we can, yes. Yeah, so our messaging that tested most effectively did talk about what advocates have long called "move the money." You know, it's 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 intuitive. So I think that's part of why it resonates with folks. We intentionally, like I said, we're, we're trying to use the lessons learned from the race class narrative folks and, and some other research that we've done to, to come up with the most effective versions of different types of messages to test with, with this, with different audiences. And I think talk about meeting the moment, people are tired. My goodness. I don't know about you. I'm tired. <laughs> yes. And I think folks want a conflict abroad like they want a hole in the head. I mean, it's just we I think part of what's behind some of these high numbers that we're seeing is that folks are exhausted after, you know, three plus years now of first pandemic war in Ukraine and everything else that we've all been experiencing I'm looking outside my window here in Philadelphia, and we've had incredible air quality issues for the last day or two, which is a 
because of climate change and climate disaster in Canada. It's just, I mean, it's just... And the U.S. military is one of the largest polluters. I'm not a climate change expert, but that's my understanding from my colleagues. That's another issue that AFSC works on is the carbon footprint of the U.S. military, which is a difficult needle to thread, by the way. We tested that one. Yes, I noticed that. I didn't. That was news to me. That was some messaging that actually didn't work. And I was. I, I think that's something we need to get better at talking about. Yeah, it may be a difficult thing for people to connect the mil- military's use of fossil fuels to the climate crisis. So things that we found that work, talking about things, explicit things that can bring us all together and whenever possible, without getting us down in the weeds of the problem, but lifting up a short, easy to understand, graspable version of the problem. So I think peace builders and a lot of advocates working in a lot of different spaces often go down the rabbit hole of how bad the problem is and how big it is and how expensive it is. And, and, and it causes folks to shut down and, and conflict fatigue, crisis fatigue, that is a real phenomenon that people really, really do want to climb under their covers at night, myself included. Right. And they hear these things and it really does shut people down and demobilizes them. We've seen that a lot in our research. So give them the short, sweet version of the problem and then give them the solution. Remind them of the time that they solved that problem or a similar problem using a memory or an, an historical example that is familiar to people and then pivot as quickly as you can to the solution, the thing they can do to help you solve the problem. Another thing that you felt was positive is that you mentioned that there has been a significant change at the practitioner level. That is, the peace-building community is getting more deeply interested in communicating more effectively about the practice, what it is, how it works. Tell us how, what you see in you know, evidence of, of that kind of attitude change. That's a great question. I see it in a lot of different spaces. When I first started my role here at AFSC about nine years ago now, almost nine years ago, talking about peace or communicating about peace I didn't have a lot of folks to reach out to or peers to reach out to. And now I feel like we really have some some exciting communities of practice that have emerged among professionals. I give a lot of credit to frameworks and organizations like the Alliance for Peace Building and encourage listeners to go listen to that. If you like this episode, you'll really like the one with Liz Hume and, and Drew Volmert. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I see it at PeaceCon, on the annual conference that a lot of us attend to communicate with each other and get together and share ideas and share beers and stuff like that. There was a whole narrative track this year. I, th- I see a growing interest in that space and similar conference professional spaces like that. Yeah. You know, it's still a huge challenge to get American voters to care about peace building. Yes. Are there any hints from the research you, you and your colleagues have been doing that point to some effective approaches that might change the situation? You know, that's an interesting question that I think about a lot. You know, do we need people to care about peace building in the same way that they care about the economy or healthcare or those kitchen table issues that we know generate votes at the ballot box and so forth? And to be honest, I'm not sure we need people to care deeply or be super well informed because we have values on our side, right? We all agree. Right. We have the data to show and and a lot of us have the personal experience of agreeing that it's better to be at peace than at war. 
And so while I am 100% all in for learning how to talk more effectively about and communicate more effectively with more people about peace building, I'm not sure that it needs to be elevated that much because folks already get it on a, on an intuitive moral level. You can't buy that, right? You can't, that is, that is to me, that's the most important first step. And we've already got that. We know we do. I think what's needed, or one, one of the things that's needed is the answer to the, to folks very real and very relevant fears about what happens it when they don't feel safe or when there is a Russia when Russia does invade Ukraine, some sort of fear mongering in the media or in DC or wherever. I think we need as peace builders to have better responses and, and, and effective responses to assure people that we can solve these problems. We've done it before and here's how we're going to do it. And again, I don't know that we need like the whole chapter and verse technical explanation. I tend to actually cringe when I hear the super complex answers because I feel like they do go over folks' heads. And and on some level, it doesn't matter. I, I think what needs to be communicated is more that we've got this, the part where we have a, we have a solution. And here's like the short soundbite version of it. Right. And I think that's the level that we need to be working on as a field. What insights do you have for peace builders trying to get their message to the news media? Yeah. I've been very fortunate to work with an excellent media relations team in my time at AFSC. And one of the, one of the things I learned early on from them that I always try to remember is that journalists are people too, and they have (laughs) jobs and deadlines and supervisors who also have jobs and deadlines, right? And they work for organizations that have their own goals and deadlines and everything else. So to remember that in your communications with them and, and try to, try to understand a little bit about where they're coming from and what those sorts of parameters they might be working under. What are, what are, what's on their minds? You know, what are they, what are they trying to get at? What's their beat like? What are, what problems are they trying to solve and see if there's an alignment between what you're trying to do and your messaging or what your campaign might be about or what your organization might be trying to lift up. Yeah, no, it's, I, I mean, I came across a great quote from John Powell, you know, the head of the belonging Institute. He says, we don't want to change people's minds. We want to open them. Yes. I love that. That's great. I I love that. Are there any things that I didn't ask you that you think are important for us to think about when we're talking about audience attitudes towards peace and conflict? I think we touched on this briefly, but one of the things I try to remind my colleagues about most often or very often a lot of the time is that people are busy. They have very limited bandwidth, especially for problems that, well, especially for problems, (laughs) right? (laughs) They have their own problems. They don't need problems from us. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, and the crisis fatigue is real. I mean, yeah, one of the things I work very hard on with a lot of my colleagues on our communications team is to remind folks that, you know, the many messengers that are working on really important advocacy campaigns for all sorts of different types of issues in the U.S. and abroad is that the crisis fatigue is real. And once you've turned somebody off, it's that much harder to, to get them back. And so if you right. can start from that place of positivity, open, inspiring an open mind as, uh, to... As John Powell said, yeah. Yeah, you have, to, you have to help open people up and you have to speak to their, to their values, that going back to the shared values piece from earlier. So to the extent that you can do that, 
do it because once you lose that commonality, it's incredibly difficult to get that person back. Yeah, I think that's really, you know, the, the answer to our divisiveness issues is just trying to get people to focus on. And I think to some extent, the race class narrative does a little bit of that is to get people to focus on our commonality. Beth, thank you very much for your time and your energy and your insights and look forward to continued uh, collaboration with AFSC on messaging and public awareness of peace building. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate all that you guys are doing. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're also passionate about peace building or shrinking the military budget. It's worth thinking about how you talk to the people in your life about these issues. If you're listening on an iPhone, please leave us a review in your podcast app and tell us how you communicate about peace. Or you can email me at jsimon at warstoriespeacestories.org. We're also on Twitter at warstoriespeace, and I'd love to hear from you. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrew Moraskin. The associate producer is Faith McClure. Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories, Peace Stories project. And I'm Jamil Simon. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something, please share it with a friend or a colleague. Word of mouth is the best way we can grow the show. Thanks so much for listening and talk soon. <laughs>